This is John Holtzman, and welcome to the Patrick Henry Podcast for the week, where we take a look at the hidden big picture behind how the world really works. And I am very excited because for the first time since March 2020, I am about to hit the road, as I do, and I am heading off to Washington from Milan to catch up with old friends and make sense of D.C. and begin my life again. And golly, has it been an endless house arrest. And so I'm waking up from COVID, as is the rest of the world, and I can't wait to get back out there and get on with the business of living. But ahead of that, I wanted to do the podcast and look at, while we were sleeping, what's been going on in terms of political risk, because COVID has so dominated our consciousness. Um, I look at my notes since then, and I double everything else has been COVID one way or the other, that I think we're missing the general trajectories underneath COVID. Um, I agree with Janan Ganesh, the talented writer for the FT, who says one of the things that's interesting about these world historical events, like COVID certainly is, is how little they actually change things, that beneath all this, uh, patterns that are discernible have been going on. COVID has certainly played a huge role in them, but it's amazing how much has gone on beneath the scenes, just as it was before. But these patterns have been utterly missed because we've been worried so much about the house being on fire, which is understandable. But if we don't look at the longer term patterns out in the world, boy, are we going to miss things. And so I'm here to talk about three things that have been going on while we were sleeping um, as I go back to hit the road, which I can't wait for. Um, First, the Sino-American Cold War. Before COVID, people were still arguing back in the dim reaches of March 2020. People were still arguing about whether indeed America and China were headed for a Cold War. That's how bad the political risk analysis was. Uh, Or people were saying, like Eurasia, there had been a Cold War we'd already lost. I don't really know what that means, but given that the company has a record of being wrong about almost everything, what can you expect? There were still people around touting Chimerica, that there were so many links that bound the United States to China uh, that in the end, these links were more important than our differences. Uh, and indeed, this Cold War is different. When, when there was a Cold War, with, Cold War with the Soviets, we had almost nothing economically in common, and now we do. Um, or we do until now. What you're seeing is the supply chain that linked the global community together beginning to delink. And it won't totally delink. This isn't a light switch. It isn't all or nothing. But it was intricately bound together with just-in-time manufacturing being the name of the game and components made all over the world. And although this makes macroeconomic sense, geopolitics has trumped macroeconomics, as it so often does. We've decided that, no, maybe it's not great that all our masks are made in China, that maybe it's not great that certain pharmaceutical products are only made in China, that we need to onshore more manufacturing, both uh, because it's a good thing to have our workers have jobs in the lower middle class and be aspirational, and also for security reasons, that maybe we don't want China making everything that we need. Maybe China having a preponderance of rare earths isn't a good idea. Maybe that most of the world's semiconductors come from Taiwan under great pressure isn't a good idea. Maybe we need to diversify from the one big supply chain and onshore more, as well as do regionalization. And so that doesn't mean that the grand supply chain with China is going to break down entirely. It won't. It will still be much more economically linked with the United States than the Soviet Union ever was. 
but the days of pure macroeconomic first globalization, where we have one supply chain and we don't really care where the components are made, we don't really care the nature of the regime that's making them, that's gone. And that's changed in just the last 18 months. We've seen over and over again how we don't want the Chinese making everything, how manufacturing in one supply chain puts us at the mercy of our enemies. And now pretty much everybody agrees this. So the macroeconomics has changed immensely. But what also has changed immensely over this time period is our notions of what's going on, that yet again, Eurasia is wrong. Mr. Bremer uh, couldn't find water if he fell out of a boat. Wrong about Brexit, wrong about Trump, wrong about Angela Merkel, and wrong about this. China is indeed in a Cold War with the United States. Because while the United States has been preoccupied, one, the Chinese gave us the virus, a fact that can't be overstated. Everyone knows this. And they're covering up the origins of the virus don't exactly make them look innocent. And indeed, this is great circumstantial evidence that they're guilty. And no one's saying this is a James Bond story with Spectre meeting and saying, how much number three have we done in narcotics? No one's saying that. What we're saying instead is that the Chinese, once they saw they were going to take the hit from the virus, did everything they could, and the flight manifests are clear, did everything they could to lock down China itself while leaving international travel open. And that's wicked. That's manslaughter. Xi Jinping was saying, if we're going to take an almighty hit, so are you. And it's very hard to forgive the Chinese for doing this, to put it mildly, nor will anyone forget that they loose this plague upon the rest of us willingly. And that has changed a lot of attitudes to China. In just the last two years, if you look at the Pew Research numbers, a vast majority of Americans now see them correctly as the enemy. And so loosing the plague on the rest of us is a major factor here. But the Chinese have been at work while we've been preoccupied clamping down on their students in Hong Kong, abrogating, in essence, their agreement with the British that there would be one country, two systems until the 2040s. Obviously, this hasn't come to pass. And instead, the Chinese smashed the democratic movement, which was gathering headway, smashed it down, and at the same time uh, said, who's going to stop us? And of course, no one can. But it doesn't look good that you're crushing your students' aspirations for democracy or that you're abrogating yet another agreement. Because another agreement they've abrogated is the one in the South China Sea. The Hague courts for arbitration ruled that the Chinese do not control 80 or 90 percent of the South China Sea, to which the Chinese, to paraphrase Andrew Jackson, in essence said, they've made their ruling, now let them enforce it. Meaning nothing happened. The Chinese continue to dominate the region, continue to militarize atolls, man-made islands, etc., so that they can, in fact, control the region um, and defy anyone to stop them. Well, this doesn't exactly say that they're a useful member of the international community. They have bullied the Australians for having the temerity to ask where COVID came from, putting sanctions on them hysterically for merely mentioning that maybe the Chinese have something to answer for here. They have fought the Indians in the high Himalaya, taking territory along the line of actual control, which had been fairly static for a long period of time. The Chinese are on the march even against rising great power India, uh, fighting people and pushing people literally, and this is James Bond-like or more John Buchan-like. They've been pushing people off of cliffs, fighting with bats with barbed wire around them, and killed 20 Indian soldiers in the process of taking territory in the high Himalaya. They continue, of course, to treat the Uyghurs as non-humans and run camps in western China in Xinjiang province, 
And so for all these reasons, along with bullying Taiwan almost daily, people have slowly, dimly, way behind the curve and certainly behind me and my firm, come to the conclusion now it's settled view in Washington, both among Republicans, Democrats, and even bad political risk analysts, such as I've named, that there is indeed a Cold War with China. By the way, hold us accountable. If we're wrong all the time, you should say so. If we're right, we should also say so. The idea that there's merit to the system is the only way political risk is going to help anyone. And indeed, I'm going to do an upcoming broadcast about our over 80% call record, best in the business. But the times we were right, we're going to do a, a, a podcast. And then the times we were wrong and what we can learn from both. The only way to get better is to learn from both. But the only way to get better is to be honest. And frankly, some of the leading lights of our industry have a record worse than the monkey score, which would be 50%. But anyway, for all these reasons, people now accept that China and the United States are in a Cold War. And this has come about while we were sleeping. The second thing, and it's connected to this first point, um, is the macroeconomic point that we now have inflation and that the idea that inflation, the beast, has been tamed somehow now looks a bit quaint. And indeed, we're whistling by the graveyard, literally, in this case. Um, I had the great good fortune, and one of the best things about my life is that I get to meet interesting people. And that makes my life interesting. I had the great good fortune to meet the late Paul Volcker at a conference in Switzerland and to have breakfast with him and just get to talk about how he destroyed inflation pretty much on his own with the help of Ronald Reagan. And in doing this, um, Reagan gave him, as he said, the wonderful political support. Volcker said, look, if we put interest rates up into the stratosphere, we can destroy inflation, but it will lead to a recession, which occurred in the United States in 1981-82, and that will lead to a huge political hit. And Reagan, as Volcker recounted the story to me, waved his hand amiably and said, you let me worry about the politics, Paul. You worry about destroying inflation. And miraculously, for two generations, the beast of inflation has been chained in a cage. But like any good horror movie, the beast is now loose through a series of ridiculous central bank asleep at the switch moves. We've thrown water or we've thrown gasoline onto an open fire, and now we find ourselves with inflation to come. It's the result of a couple things, supply and demand being disjointed because of COVID. There's pent-up demand. Supply can't meet it in the short run, and so this leads to bottlenecks, and this leads to inflation. If that's all that's going on, over time, a couple years, this can be worked out. That would be the market correcting itself. But that's not all that's going on. Part of the bottleneck for this is, again, this delinking of the one common supply chain into regionalization, that the EU is going to do more within the EU in terms of trade, that NAFTA, the US, Canada, and Mexico, which is roughly equal in size to the EU, is going to do more internally because you have much more secure supply chains. And in the case of both the EU and NAFTA, you're dealing with political groups that are like yours. They're democratic societies. Everyone in the EU is democratic. The Mexicans, the Canadians, the Americans are all democratic, and that this is a much more secure way to proceed with political risk. And so there's going to be a regionalization that goes ahead. And this regionalization um, will be a delinking of the one global supply chain, and that's going to lead to bottlenecks as this process sorts itself out over a decade. But that there'll be inflation as a result of that. So inflation is due to about three reasons. Again, first, this normal disjointed nature of the pent-up demand coming from COVID ending to supply not catching up, that's manageable. This less manageable delinking of one global supply chain into regionalization, 
It's not that trade goes away, but there will be some onshoring and there also will be increased regionalization. But the one global supply chain begins to fall apart. And as a result of this, there are going to be higher prices. That's part of the price you pay. And frankly, geoeconomics, again, is trumped by geopolitics. People are willing to pay this. You don't need eight T-shirts made in China so that we can be at the mercy of Xi Jinping, given his recent track record during COVID. People are willing to have three better T-shirts made in Canada, Mexico, or the United States and not have to worry about Xi Jinping. So there's that. And then the last point for inflation is the Volcker point that central banks and political leaders have taken their eye off the ball and in their terror at the dislocation that came from COVID, they've poured gasoline onto a roaring fire, that we've primed the pump with so much Keynesian stimulus that we ignored that pent-up demand was already going to take care of a lot of the post-COVID problems. In other words, we've ignored the market typically as Democrats like Joe Biden are wont to do, and we've over-egged the, the pump. We've over-primed the pump and that's what's going to happen. We're talking about with the Biden stimulus plans. And again, I'm for the first one. The infrastructure one is a great idea. Everyone who's been on an American road needs it needs repaving. We need to update our electricity grid. We need to update our airports and ports. I may travel the world. They're certainly utterly mediocre and could be a lot better. And we need to expand broadband into rural areas, much as the Tennessee Valley Authority allowed electricity to go to rural areas. We need to see that broadband is everywhere. In the long run, that'll pay for itself. That's about a trillion dollars. We should spend that money and indeed, there's been bipartisan support for doing that. But the $2.5 trillion or the $3.5 trillion, it's now been whittled down to $1.75 trillion Democratic wish list plan, which will probably still pass, um, is money that's not needed. This is just a Democratic progressive fantasy bill. They need to pass it after Virginia because they know their days in power are numbered. The midterms in 2022 are just around the corner. The Republicans are set to win a majority in the House, if not the Senate. The House, I think, is gone for the Democrats with the Senate in the balance still. But if I had to be a betting man, I'd bet on the Republicans at the moment, though. Stay tuned for our prediction as that moves along. But in any case, this is their last chance to get everything they want and spend money like a drunken sailor. So these three things put together, the COVID dislocation, the delinking of the common supply chain, and the spending money like a drunken sailor, when already pent-up demand was going to take care of a lot of your problem, this will lead, all these things point, to endemic inflation, to real inflation, and this will lead to a major global political risk, because there will be an effort to scramble, to slay the beast, to get him back into Volcker's cage, bless him, and this will lead to an increase in interest rates, and that will be a drag on growth. And that is a problem for the rest of the world. And so watch out for a huge political risk being an increase in interest rates dragging down the recovery coming out of COVID and all that leads to, because the beast of inflation isn't just some local passing moment. Even the central bankers are beginning to figure out that, gosh, the beast has gotten loose again. And it's largely our fault. And that's the second thing that's happened macroeconomically while you're sleeping. And then the third thing that's happened, and I've mentioned it before in a piece I just wrote for Rosa Rubini, is the whittling out of the great political parties of the West being replaced with personality-driven politics. Like him or hate him, Donald Trump taking over the Republican Party in 2016 changed the nature of the party. 
the establishment of the party had an unfriendly takeover by Donald Trump, who runs a one-man band, not an establishment party, not a party machine, not a common view of political moderation, fiscal responsibility, and realism. That's not what you get with Trump. You get populism. Uh, you get one-man band politics. You get the individual and his foibles mattering psychologically far more than the establishment of the party. Well, this is new. And this is the Republican Party going the way of many European parties. In Italy, this began under Berlusconi. Uh, then you have the Five Star Movement, which came out of a, I'm not making this up, a political comic. Mr. Grillo started that party, which is very personality driven. Uh, you have Draghi looming over everything in Italy with the parties very weak. You see the CDU in Germany, the great center-right party of Konrad Adenauer uh, and Helmut Kohl being hollowed out and beginning to fade. You see the SPD beginning to fade. In France, the two great parties, the, S the Socialist Party and the Gaullist Party, are likely not going to get a candidate in the second round of presidential voting yet again, as the personality-driven contest is between Marine Le Pen or Eric Zemmour even, a talk show Trump-style superstar in the French TV firmament, versus Emmanuel Macron. The one thing all three of these people have in common and almost nothing else is they are personality-driven. So you see all across the board, the old grand parties that held the West together beginning to collapse, but nothing being there to put in its place. And as a result, you're going to see an increased political risk internally. In other words, we are the political risk. Political risk isn't just about what happens in Africa and Asia and to other people, but too often we fail to look squarely in the mirror at where we are and what we're doing. If you add in this increased danger of a Sino-American Cold War, which is already well advanced, and you add in as well this increased inflation leading to increased interest rates, leading to decreased rates of growth, which in Europe particularly, which has been sclerotic for a generation, is not the political news that they need even as they over-egg the cake um, with their spending, when you add all this in, you see increased political risk in the advanced industrial countries of the world. So the big three takeaways as we end this broadcast while you were sleeping are the Sino-American Cold War, which we called well before the event, unlike many of our less adroit uh, competitors, um, is, a, is a thing that now everyone accepts, and that's happened while we were sleeping, that inflation is not some passing phase, but is now going to be endemic, leading to increased interest rates and decreased growth. This has happened while you were sleeping, and that the basic political machinery that guided the West for the last 70 years has come unstuck uh, among the great center-right parties, certainly in France, Germany, the United States, only Japan, the Liberal Democratic Party goes on to triumph after triumph, but also in Italy and among the socialist parties, even the SPD in Germany, it's going to win, but at a very low score. And in France, where the Socialist Party candidate for president is polling at about eight or nine percent of the vote, the mayor of Paris. And so for all these reasons, this is the new world we live in. Sino-American Cold War, endemic inflation and real economic ructions that we haven't seen for 40 years. And we are the political risk that internally, the West is susceptible to personality-driven populism, which makes understanding what's going to happen ever so much more harder and makes stability a distant dream. This is the world we're going to have to navigate as I go catch my plane. And on that note, thank you for listening to the Patrick Henry Podcast. Thanks so many of you for subscribing. It's overwhelming. It's, it's, it's just a, a 
snowball rolling downhill that's going to be an avalanche. And we're delighted at all the subscription rates. Please do keep that up. And as I'm about to have my morning espresso, thank you so much for those of you who've actually given. Again, all we're asking, $7 a month, $70 a year, the price of the beans of the espresso that I make uh, to have us do this. We're devoting more and more of our time to doing this. And on Substack, which is my favorite platform ever created, we can speak directly together without middlemen. The only way to do that is to give the price of a coffee bean. Thanks so much for that. And I will next report from Washington, where I'll report in on what I learned from spending 10 days in the nation's capital. Okay, take care. Bye.